one parent, two kids, 423 national park sites. This is Expedition National Parks. Dispatches and stories from one family's journey to discover the natural, historical, and cultural treasures of the United States. For many, many Americans, that place of refreshment will be land owned by all the people, parks, seashores, refuges of one kind or another. The growing needs of an urban America are quickening the tick of the conservation clock. While at the visitor center of the Lyndon B. Johnson National Historical Park, we learned of the important work First Lady Lady Bird Johnson did for the United States. Given our podcast's focus on national parks, we were especially interested in her work on conservation and beautification. With March being Women's History Month, we wanted to further explore her accomplishments. When we learned that we could access her audio diaries through the LBJ Presidential Library website, we knew we wanted to do an episode that featured the First Lady in her own words. We were impressed to realize the full extent of her impact. President Johnson, of course, realized that and made a special presentation to her on July 28, 1968. He gave her 50 pens that had been used to sign legislation related to conservation and beautification. Only a portion of the 300 conservation measures that he signed into law, the legal foundation of the contemporary environmental movement. He also gave her a plaque that read, To Lady Bird, who inspired me and millions of Americans to try to preserve our land and beautify our nation. With love from Lyndon. And inspire Americans did she definitely do. Her conservation work continued throughout her 94 years until her death in 2007. Former Secretary of the Interior, Bruce Babbitt, referred to her as the Shadow Secretary of the Interior, and she was honored with the highest civilian honors, the Medal of Freedom from President Ford in 1977 and the Congressional Gold Medal from President Reagan in 1988. Her signature campaign is usually referred to as one of beautification and is often put in quotation marks, mainly to express that it was so much more than that. In this excerpt of an oral history interview with Michael Gillette, a series he conducted in December 1984, February 1985, when he was director of the LBJ Library's Oral History Program, she describes what drove her interest in this area, as well as her frustrations with the term beautification. We will be using excerpts from different sources in this episode, and the sound quality varies. We think the value of the substance outweighs the imperfect sound quality, and I hope you feel the same way. How did you become involved in the beautification conservation effort? Let me try to explore that. I am... Um... Shortly after the inauguration uh, in January of 65, I knew I wanted to concentrate whatever I could do on whatever parts of Lyndon's program that made my heart sing, that came naturally, that belonged to me. And so I began to, to, to try to acquaint myself with all the facets of it. And all my life, Nature, scenery, the beauties of this country had just been um, my joy, my, uh, what fueled my spirit, made me happy. And Lyndon made a speech, and as I recall, it was uh, at Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I think it was about February of 65, anyhow, early on into the and 
it was a, a great deal of it was about the environment, about conservation, and I, I decided that is what that's for me. And uh, Stuart Udall, Secretary of the Interior, who was an expert salesman, came to see me, uh, hoping to interest me in um, in the field of conservation. Uh, for the national parks, for whatever. We were both exploring, and um, it was, um, to me, it was it was the right choice. So we began to um, uh, form a committee, and we were going to work right there uh, in our hometown, committee for the, um, a more beautiful national capital, Put on it, uh, people with, uh, who had spent their lives uh, in, in environmental uh, efforts of some sort or another, like Lawrence Rockefeller and Mary Lasker, and then uh, the, the heads of uh, uh, head of the Park Service, uh, people who had natural relations there, and the city heads, uh, head of the city planning commission. And here I have to be imprecise about names. Um, and we got underway, and we hoped it would have a ripple effect. And the early concept was that the way uh, L'Enfant had laid out the city of Washington, with all those circles um, and triangles, where mostly there were at that time just uh, maybe a dilapidated fallen down bench and a few scraggy plants, that uh, if we began to um, plant those beautifully and make them centers for people to sit and rest on a spring or summer day and contemplate our beautiful capital, um, that it would have a ripple effect not only in, in the pride of people in their capital city, but in their own hometown of uh, Keokuk, Iowa, uh, Selma, Alabama, or wherever they might be. So um, we were just a bunch of pioneers sort of feeling our way. And let me say right here, the word beautification never really suited any of us, and we struggled to find something else, but uh, not successfully. And so we stayed with the bird. Um, let me though quickly say, it, it, to me, it was always just part of the of the, of the, of the whole um, broad tapestry of environment: clean air, clean water, uh, free rivers, uh, the preservation of uh, scenic areas. It was just; it had its niche. In, in the whole broad field, which was became a consuming interest to me in the next five years, and will always be. I am hooked. <laughs> was your role in to bring it onto a larger stage or a more national forum and, and uh, magnify the importance of beautification? Yes, uh, you see, um, in in a way. I think we were both 
riding a wave and trying to make that wave surge forward. I think the time had come in our national consciousness to look at the environment and question what man was doing to harm it, how we could harness those uh, harmful things without doing would still let free enterprise and industry uh, serve the country, but uh, preserve the environment while we were doing it. And I, I think uh, it was, um, we watched thought who was, whose time was about to come, and I think whatever service we performed, was to walk this on to the national stage, put it on the national agenda, uh, and, and yes, beautification, prissy word though it may be, became sort of the business of the um, politician, the businessman, uh, the, the newspaper uh, editor, and not just the ladies over a cup of tea. We broadened uh, the scope of it, I hope, think, and made awareness of it. That was, because the more you read about it, the more concerned you came, became about the world you had known as a child and how rapidly it could slipped through fingers and the next generation would not inherit it as beautiful and clean and full of flowers and open spaces as you remember it. So, in whatever ways we can touch that problem, I tried. She spoke about the term beautification in her diary on September 21st, 1966, during a trip to California. And I know that the people of Monterey Peninsula know that conservation, beautification, call it what you will, is more than just one tree, or one historic building, or one scenic highway. It is a frame of reference, a way of life. She reflected on one of her first discussions with Interior Secretary Stuart Udall on November 20th, 1964, in her audio diary. Stu and I had a moment to sit down and discuss quietly what he hopes I will become interested in, that is, launching a movement to make Washington truly the most beautiful city in the country, with flowers and parks and landscaped areas, enlisting the interests not only of government, but of business firms. He had a very well-written memo for Lyndon on seven or eight ways that the great society was related to his department. One that excited me the most was the planting along the highways of native shrubs and flowers. Several states do not use the allotments that they at present receive from the federal government for such purposes. Another was a plan to eradicate or at least screen from public view the dreadful graveyards of worn-out automobiles, the acres of junked cars that dot the landscape as you fly over the country. And, of course, his always favorite project is save some wilderness land. And in tune with that, inexpensive family vacations in national parks of great variety, with one or two new ones being added. One along the seashore in North Carolina, I believe. I think he's one of the most imaginative idea men 
and the administration. And now it is time for our outdoor org feature. During the month of March, we're continuing to work alongside several other outdoor industry and national park-related content creators to feature a nonprofit organization. This month, this is Love is King, an organization whose vital work to help diversify our public lands and make nature a safe base for all people. LIK is a movement led with love and empathy to defend the freedom to roam in nature as a basic human right. Join us in supporting Love is King by sharing and engaging with their work and donating if you can. Learn more about them through the link in our bio and by following at LIK underscore free to roam and founder at underscore Chad Brown underscore. She was a very public champion of preservation of our natural space and that was by design. With Secretary of the Interior Stuart Udall, she launched Discover America, which were trips to national parks, which were referenced to in the film at the Visitor Center. We had no idea of the extent of these trips when we were there. Only later, while doing research, did we realize the full impact. 100,000 miles, 40 tours all over the country, and engaging in a wide range of activities. Crisscrossing across the country while rafting, hiking, camping, beachcombing, stargazing, and learning about American Indian culture. These trips drew widespread press attention, both domestically and internationally, and encouraged people to visit the parks. Journalists were an important part of the equation as media coverage amplified her work both nationally and internationally. She references the 40 European journalists accompanying her to the dedication of Padre Island National Seashore in her audio diary on April 8, 1968. She also reflected on the importance of national parks and the evolution of their creation, as well as President Johnson's accomplishments in this area. I told him how delighted I was to be here on this important day in the life of Padre Island. Its dedication into the national park system means it will forever belong to the people, to generations of campers, scout troops, fishermen, bird watchers, and sunbathers, to travelers from near and far. I'm particularly glad that I could bring some 40 journalists from Europe who are here on a Discover America trip. And then I talked to the National Park Service and its 133 million visitors each year to these national treasures. What does it take to make a national park? There are many here on this stand who could answer that. It takes a dream. And I spoke of Judge Oscar Dancy, whose dream it was for more than 30 years. And years of hard work by the believers. Newspapers like the Corpus Christi Caller Times. And then surveys and legislations. And here, a bouquet for Senator Ralph Yarbrough and the Congressman John Young and Kika de la Garza. And, if I may be forgiven for pointing it out, it also takes a president who recognizes the value of this kind of project. In his years in the White House, the president has secured 35 new additions to the national park system. They comprise over one million acres the equivalent of Grand Canyon National Park and Grand Teton combined. There are now 163 linear miles of shoreline newly preserved at Cape Lookout, Assateague, Fire Island, Pictured Rocks, and Indiana Dunes. The president calls them a necklace of national seashores. Because he knows well the thirst that is still growing for wild places, and outdoor recreation. A few days ago, he launched a program to identify and save other wild islands along the coast. And then I went on to describe 
a family vacation we had had some 20 years ago along one of these ribbons of sand in the Texas Gulf Coast. It had been John and Nellie and KK and Johnny and a plump Linda and about a four-year-old Lucy who looked like a little fairy. Our mind turns back to it today. We walked the beach and felt that sense of timelessness that envelops one like the rolling waves. There is always an ineffable tranquility when you are face to face with sea and sky, forces which put one's own problems into perspective. I remember the delicious sense of discovery, of coming upon a treasure in the sand, an old blue glass ball that came to these shores by what paths and currents I know not, from some faraway country, perhaps from some Portuguese fisherman's net. It has been my talisman ever since. Each time I see it on the shelf, it invites me back to the wild seashore. And then I said what I hope they will remember, if anything. It takes not only the dreamers, the believers, the legislators, it will take also the keepers, the watchful stewards for national belongings such as Padre Island. So I would urge those who are charged with the facilities that will doubtless be built not only within the seashore areas, but on its commercial fringes, to make man's structures in harmony with nature's. A plea that the roads, buildings, parking lots, signs, and markers should be tasteful, an assertion that if they were, they would reap dividends over the decades. The national parks were an important part of President Johnson's legislative agenda. He created or expanded close to 50 units. These units spanned the country and were also in urban areas, as both President and Lady Bird Johnson believed it was important that all Americans had access to their parks. It was also during the Johnson presidency that the national recreation areas and the national trail systems were enacted. The legislation for these national trails emphasized the recreation of trails in both rural and urban areas. Check out the link in the episode notes to see for yourself how well distributed the new parks were across the nation. The First Lady herself refers to this in her audio diary on September 21, 1966, following her dedication of Point Reyes National Seashore on the previous day. I talked about what a national seashore could mean as a place of peace in the lives of our people. For one of the dominant facts of modern times is that Americans, who traditionally have been close to the land, now live and work farther and farther from natural surroundings. Every person wants a sense of place, and a place where he can be at repose. For many, many Americans, that place of refreshment will be land owned by all the people, parks, seashores, refuges of one kind or another. The growing needs of an urban America are quickening the tick of the conservation clock. I used the legend of Antaeus and some quotes from Thoreau and probably got rather far afield from my audience who were digging their toes in the sand. And then I unveiled a dedicatory plaque naming this a national seashore. The outlines of a park service building were already going up. Tall timbers painted sea green, planted in the sand, sticking skyward. And then, for the benefit of the photographers, we strolled on the beach, Governor Brown and Stu and I, and a great wave came crashing in right behind us, and we did a beach ballet, advancing before it. I shook hands through the crowd, all quite happy and genial. None of the ugly banners yet that I had been led to believe would appear at ever California stop. And then we were off in the helicopter, 
flying back over San Francisco and a marvelous view of the Golden Gate Bridge, which we circled, and into Cressy Field. Brief greetings from the top officers of the field, and then in a motorcade to the Fairmont Hotel. And here is an excerpt of the actual mark she made at the Point Reyes National Seashore Dedication Ceremony. It is from Faces of the West, Navy film that captured scenes from her four-day beauty and conservation tour to California, Arizona, and New Mexico with Interior Secretary Stuart Udall. Every person wants a sense of place and a place where he can be at repose. For many, many Americans, that place of refreshment will be land owned by all the people, parks, seashores, refuges of one kind or another. It is of paramount importance that we save and set aside enough sanctuaries for the future. The growing needs of an urban America are quickening the tick of the conservation clock. Let us dedicate Point Reyes National Seashore to the vitality of the American people and to generations yet unborn who will come here with the continent at their backs and gaze afar into immensity. Thank you so much for letting me share this time with you. Her remarks at the dedication of the Redwood National Forest also highlighted President Johnson's historic track record. And today, our thriving nation, busy in its efforts to educate the young, heal the sick, and conquer poverty, recognizes also that we must save our natural heritage. We have declared these trees to be a precious part of that heritage. The crusade to save the trees has involved schoolchildren, conservationists, congressmen, and concerned citizens all over America. In fact, if the letters crossing my desk are any indication, support for the Redwoods Park has been worldwide. Many people were disturbed by the specter of a freeway slashing through Prairie Creek State Park. Others were rallied by the Save the Redwoods League and the Sierra Club, whose magnificent photographs and publications dramatized the unique beauties of this forest. At any rate, a great many people got together, and when, when the feelings of this country are felt, uh, when, when government senses how deeply people aspire to something, things happen. And now the dream of conservationists and nature lovers is a reality for all the people. As many of you know, Many of the redwood trees we see today are over 2,000 years old, but their race goes back far, far beyond human memory, a hundred million years. They came before the great glaciers. They have survived volcanic eruptions and the upward thrust of mountain ranges. And here on the north coast of California, the ancient and awesome redwoods make their last stand. Surely, 1968 was the year to act. Land prices were rising. The harvest operations of lumber companies were coming nearer and nearer. 
time was running out. It is one of my husband's proudest achievements that in a time when many other pressing needs were crowding in, his administration and the Congress were able to designate $93 million for the Redwoods, acquire timber trading lands, and assure that there would be a Redwoods National Park. Today, I want to express my gratitude to the Redwood Lumber Companies. They have shown great generosity in carrying out the intent of Congress. The change from timberland to parkland is causing a major alteration in many businesses, and I, am one, as one citizen, appreciate very much the cooperative spirit in which the, uh, they are approaching these transactions. There is, of course, a great deal of work left to be done by all of us. There have been, and I am proud of it, 300 conservation bills passed in the last five years, ranging from pollution to parks. But the application of laws by local people makes the difference. In these coming months, as this area marks its transition from a timber economy to a tourist economy, officials of the counties, the state, and the federal government have a great opportunity to cooperate, to plan for the growth of this region. What a tragedy it would be if tomorrow's tourists find a repetition of yesterday's mistakes, neon strips and honky-tonk development, and how wonderful it will be if the planning of the tourist facilities here bring compliments, if the things man builds here seek to match the beauty of what God has wrought. The gift of the redwoods is peace. Here in the woodlands, one can sense the great contrast between the slow, steady life of these trees with all their majesty and solitude and our pell-mell daily life, our headlong urban bustle with its taxi rides, red lights, and jet-powered mobility. People who seek tranquility, a chance for reflection, will find and love this place. They will try and probably fail to capture this solitude in words. It is impossible to find praise that is adequate. Perhaps the best tribute anyone can offer is to walk away from these forests a little straighter, a little taller, embracing life a little more joyfully and calmly for having seen this place. The Latin name for the great redwoods, Sequoia Sempervirens, means the tree that never dies. Let us be thankful that in this world, which offers so few glimpses of immortality, these trees are now a permanent part of our heritage. I'm glad to be here to share this moment and to dedicate this spot to the happiness of the people. Thank you. And I'm going to thank all of you over there for that lovely song. <laughs> the Johnsons donated their private home in Texas, known as the Texas White House, to the National Park Service but retained lifetime rights to use the house. Following the First Lady's death in 2007, 
The home was open to the public on August 27, 2008, the 100th anniversary of President Johnson's birth. I hope learning about the First Lady in this episode has inspired you as much as she inspired us. We end this episode with the First Lady quoting Henry David Thoreau. We must be refreshed by the sight of inexhaustible vigor, vast and titanic features, the seacoast with its wrecks, the wilderness with its living and decaying trees, the thundercloud, and the rain which lasts three weeks and produces freshets. We need to witness our own limits transgressed and some life pasturing freely. We are so grateful to the LBJ Presidential Library, archive.org, and Texas Humanities for the materials we used in this episode, and to the First Lady for being such a meticulous diarist in the first place. Thank you for listening. Again, please remember to check out and support Love is King. You can find more info on our episode page. We would love your feedback. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or message us on our social media accounts. We are Expedition National Parks on Facebook and Instagram and Expedition NPS on Twitter. Thanks to Jason Shaw for the music. And as always, follow the inspiration of the Junior Rangio motto, keep exploring, learning, and protecting. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.